0: Here. We live
1: here. We live here.
2: We live here. A project. Exploring. Race. Class. Power. Poverty. Systems in the people, people they, they touch.
3: touch. I'm Tim Lloyd, and from St. Louis Public Radio, this is
1: We Live Here. It's
2: going to be a black a
1: white shirt A Ferguson police officer had an encounter with uh, two individuals. There was a shooting that occurred
2: where the the
1: officer, in fact, shot the subject.
3: The sound of St. Louis County Police Chief John Belmar and the initial police dispatch calls on August 9, 2014, the day Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old black man, was fatally shot by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson. In those first hours, no one could have anticipated that the incident, something that could have happened anywhere in the region or even the country, would boil over into protests that sometimes turned violent and lasted weeks.
2: And, and this man lost his life for no reason and they're not giving us no answers. We want answers and we gonna get it and we're not leaving. I think it's time for
4: white people, and I knew it was time for me to like start challenging the way that I'm insulated from looking at racism by just being out here and.
1: We're oh. officers missed the gunfire. And I guarantee you, those officers' wives and husbands and parents are calling them now. I sit there and listen over the radio and heard the screams of those officers who were under gunfire. We have to live here when all of this is over.
3: And here we are, Ferguson, one year later, on the show Policy and Politics, Cops and Courts. Where do we stand? Where are we going? So that tape you heard at the top of the show comes from a pretty remarkable timeline put together by our newsroom that charts out life in St. Louis after August 9th, 2014. You should really take some time and check it out for yourself. You can find it at stlpublicradio.org. And, you know, sitting at my desk, going back through my tape and tape from other reporters from the past year, I find myself reaching for a metaphor that others have used as well. It, it just it felt like listening to an earthquake. Many of the racial and economic fault lines in St. Louis were well known, but the depth and ugliness of those disparities, those deep cracks just below the surface, couldn't be ignored anymore. And many people found themselves speaking to those issues loudly.
1: I'm uncomfortable every time I get in my car and turn my car on and drive down the street. I'm uncomfortable. And black people have been uncomfortable for 400 some odd years in this country.
2: I do not want to be scared to have a son in America. Like, ain't you scared to have one? You know, like, let's be real. What do our sons got to look forward to?
1: I just don't know why it happened. And it's kind of wrong. Judges, military, the FBI, you no longer have to serve a corrupt system. You sworn us to protect the rights of the people. And you are failing miserably.
3: Does it make you a little bit nervous, what's happening right now? Yeah. Yeah. So there's really just no doubt about it. Ferguson shook the St. Louis area to its core. But the question is whether or not the landscape has started to shift when it comes to economic and racial disparities, or maybe there's already been some changes.
1: I believe that for many whites and for people of color, Ferguson has been a successful step in the integration of relationships. Not for everybody. But most of the neighborhoods in Ferguson are integrated. Canfield is not really an integrated neighborhood. It's probably a part of Ferguson that is really not integrated. People in Ferguson, I think they do more than just tolerate each other. They live with each other. And some are friends, some are not. But Ferguson has the potential of being one of the first areas in St. Louis County to become a showplace for this human relations. It's been here, it's existed here, and we're not gonna make it any worse. Obviously, by law and everything else, we have to make it better. I think it's brought about uh, more conversation, but I don't know if those conversations are happening amongst the people that those conversations need to happen amongst. if you happen to be a person who is an avowed racist, what's the conversation going to solve? I mean, what's that going to prove? You you have firmly decided that you don't like black people because they are black. What's the conversation going to change?
2: I think that, from, from what I've observed of people who maybe will listen to the issues, uh, do maybe acknowledge that institutional racism is a part of it, but you can see in their eyes that they get exhausted of the conversation. They get very, very tired of talking about it over and over again, and I could go all day long about why that needs to happen anyway, but um, I'm also very encouraged because these organized groups and these institutions, these committees are all gonna go away eventually, but from what I've seen, there are individuals in this town that are not gonna let this go.
3: That was Jerry Benner of Ferguson, Greg Gibson of Breckenridge Hills, Amy Peach of Richmond Heights, and we met them through our Public Insight Network. So we know, at least in some circles, people are talking about race. But what about hard policy? Has anything happened? I asked a couple of friends in the newsroom to help me at least try and answer that question for two big systems, politics and police. And first up is Rachel Lipman, who covers the criminal justice system here at St. Louis Public Radio. She starts her answer by telling me about her visit to the Shrewsbury Police Department, one of nearly 60 departments in St. Louis County.
0: And, and so when I got to the Shrewsbury Police Department, I met up with Lieutenant Brian Catlett. He is the commander of the department's Bureau of Support Services.
1: These are the, uh, the various files that we have to keep track of. Okay. We get reviewed every three years.
3: All right. So you're at this police department in Shrewsbury and you're there to talk about potential changes in policing. So why did you start the tour with a file cabinet.
0: Because that is the heart of accreditation, is mm. it's basically you have these policies. Wait, accreditation
3: like for a police department?
0: Accreditation for a police department.
3: All right. I cover education a lot. So when I think accreditation, I think about, you know, like test scores, attendance, graduation rates, uh, same kind of thing going on with police departments.
0: Kind of, sort of. You've got the same basic premise there. It's this idea that there's a uniform set of standards that everyone within the police department knows and that if you get enough police departments participating in these accreditation programs that policing looks the same throughout the department throughout the region throughout the state theoretically throughout the country.
3: Right, but we didn't used to do this in Missouri, right?
0: Well, there was always a voluntary option to do it. The Missouri Police Chiefs Association has this program. Well, they will where they will accredit the police departments. There's also a national one called the Commission on Accreditation for Law Enforcement Agencies. That's CALEA. And that's a huge big process where you have to meet like 440 different standards. That's like the gold standard of accreditation. And a lot of states have these different departments and agencies that will do sort of these reviews and accreditation of the police department.
3: All right. But bottom line is, we didn't used to do this. We're doing this now. This is a post-Ferguson change.
0: This is a post-Ferguson change. Missouri is the first state to make this mandatory. All departments in St. Louis County, there's 58 of them right now, will have to meet accreditation either by a state-level agency, the Missouri Police Chiefs Association, or by this national agency, Calia, by 2021.
3: Uh, But this isn't necessarily a a cure-all, having these policies in place, right? Because just for instance, the DOJ report uh, noted that Ferguson, its police department, did have a use-of-force policy. It just wasn't following that policy.
0: Exactly. And unlike the education accreditation that you're familiar with and that probably a lot of our listeners are, there's no external teeth. There's mm-hmm. no yearly tests. There's no adequate yearly progress. You don't lose funding. You don't get taken over by the state if you don't meet these standards, you're set. All it means is that you don't get to hang a certificate in your department or put a little sticker on your car, your police car. and. And there's actually no evidence to support the idea that voluntary accreditation impacts officer behavior in any meaningful way. There's been studies that show it doesn't change how many crimes a department solves. It doesn't change how often officers use force. And a study by Manuel Teodoro of Texas A&M University found that it doesn't really change an officer's attitudes towards community policing, which has become this this buzzword that's emerged in the conversations post-Ferguson. Yeah,
3: let's talk about community policing in just a minute. But uh, I have to ask, does Teodoro think that requiring and making sure that every police department has to be accredited does that make a difference nope
1: i don't think it's a bad thing to do but i think any expectation that accreditation itself is going to change the attitudes and behaviors of rank and file officers is probably misguided at its best, what mandatory accreditation is going to do is force agencies to go through a process
4: of self assessment.
3: So it sounds a little like uh, these standards don't really change behavior like we were talking about earlier. Because, I mean, police officers, they don't carry around file cabinets full of uh, training manuals. They have a gun on their hip and, and a they, taser yeah, and bullets and, they have and a some other stuff too. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they got to decide how to use that stuff in a split second.
0: In a very, very split second. And that's where you get into the idea of what does change officers' behavior. How are you going to? To make sure that in the split second, the officer makes the best decision possible to keep himself and the community that they're trying to keep safe, safe.
3: All right. But let's circle back to community policing, because that's something that, I mean, you're, you're right. That's a buzzword that's been thrown out over and over and over again, especially over the last 12 months. Uh, I'm pretty sure I know what that means, but break it down.
0: The idea is, is is right there in the word, community-oriented right. oriented policing. And there's even an entire Justice Department office dedicated to this community-oriented policing strategies office at the Department of Justice. And it's this idea that if cops go out and sort of integrate themselves into the community, talk to them, get to know who they're dealing with, that it strengthens the relationship between the police officers and the community. It helps reduce crime. It helps solve crime because it builds a level of trust that a lot of people think is missing between right. a department and an officer. Yeah,
3: I mean... It kind of seems like common sense, get to know the people you're policing. Back
0: to the 1950s of cops (laughs) walking the beat, being out there, being visible, officer-friendly, baseball Mm -hmm. cards, whatever you want to call it.
3: All right. Very low-tech solution. So um, are police departments actually trying to build these ties with communities, you think, around St. Louis? They're
0: working on it. You've got the St. Louis Metropolitan Police Department even starting its own Office of Community Engagement. They've got two bike officers who they don't have to respond to radio calls. They'll just be out in the different neighborhoods roaming around. You have the mounted police police being in the different parks. You know, the horses even have Facebook pages now. They just... <laughs>
3: Wait, I'm sorry. Hold on a second. The horses have Facebook pages? The
0: horses have Facebook pages. <laughs> oh, Their riders take photos of, of where they've been and, and you can that's see all of brilliant. This... I love that. But yeah, yeah. horses have okay. Facebook pages. They've just started Coffee with a Cop, which mm, is basically right. exactly what it sounds like. You go to a McDonald's or a Hardee's or a Taco Bell and you sit and it's supposed to be a non-threatening environment where people can come and, and speak to an officer when they're not having a really, really bad day because that's kind of most often when you see a police officer.
3: We were just talking with Rachel about law enforcement, but of course, laws don't come out of thin air, right? No, no, they come from legislatures. All right. Jason Rosenbaum, political reporter here at St. Louis Public Radio, he's agreed to stop by the studio and get us up to date on some policy changes or perhaps some things that didn't happen post-Ferguson. Uh, let's talk about an arena where things did change, and that's traffic fines and municipal governments in St. Louis County.
4: By far, the biggest legislative achievement right. that was related to Ferguson was an overhaul of the municipal court system. and Along with that was a reduction in the percentage of traffic buying revenue that cities could keep. And what is that percentage? In St. Louis County, it would be 12.5%.
3: And let's remind folks what happens to the cash uh, above that 12.5% if they do collect
4: it. It goes to local schools.
3: Okay. So there's a lot of people who would say that this is a really, really good thing, and people have have really pushed for this post-Ferguson.
4: They have pushed for it because it was highlighted as one of the sources of tension between law enforcement and African Americans. Uh, The the problem with this entire situation was that most of the people that got these tickets, or many of the people that got these tickets, were poor minority motorists. And many of them couldn't pay the fines, and they were in this cycle of municipal criminality that they just couldn't get out of. Right. They can get warrants that can
3: can affect their ability to get jobs, uh, homes, all sorts of things. It's just created a whole lot of social and economic problems for mm-hmm. these people. Right. and But there's lots of
4: people who say this is a good thing, of course, um, but there's a flip side, right? There is a political mm-hmm. flip side, and that is that the majority of cities that would be affected by this bill are majority African-American and African-American-led. And there's fear that without this revenue source, they're going to go bankrupt and basically have to dissolve.
3: Let's go to a municipality that's seen big, big changes. Ferguson, the chief of police, gone. City manager, gone. Municipal judge, gone. Guy who's still there, Mayor
4: James Knowles. He's the lone survivor out of all that list. Right. But he doesn't necessarily have that much power. He doesn't have a lot of structural power. The city manager wields most of that. But he can have some indirect power if he has a friendly majority in the city council or if he has a good relationship with the city manager. And actually, he became more politically powerful after the April elections because two people that were friendly with him won over two people who are not so friendly with him.
3: And Knowles, of course, a flashpoint for a lot of controversy post-Ferguson. Um, and there's also something else floating out uh, around Ferguson, and that's the consent degree between the city and the Department of Justice regarding policing in Ferguson.
4: Yes. It's something that's being discussed right now. Uh, The Post-Dispatch had an article about how there's negotiations about that. But there's a lot of tensions, I think, between Knowles and the Justice Department, at least from a personal standpoint. When I was interviewing him for a story a couple of days ago, he mentioned to me how he thought that former Attorney General Eric Holder had treated his city differently than some of the surrounding cities.
1: I mean, to this day, it sickens me when I sit there and watch videos of the president or the attorney general of the United States in North County, arm in arm and hugging mayors of communities who, when he com- when he compares us to using police officers as revenue generators, um, you know, look who you're arm in arm with. I mean, communities who who do that. All right. So here we are.
3: We know what has changed. We know what definitely has not changed. But there still could be more policy recommendations coming as soon as next month from the Ferguson Commission.
4: Yes, the Ferguson Commission.
3: And let's remind folks what that is.
4: The Ferguson Commission was appointed by Governor Jay Nixon in the midst of the Ferguson unrest. Mm-hmm. And it was chartered to come up with policy recommendations to address St. Louis's racial, economic, and social inequities.
3: Well, let me just be Captain Obvious here and just ask the question. If we know Jeff City, it just isn't probably going to address any of these
4: policy recommendations, then who the heck is? I think it may be up to individual people to pick up the ball and run with it. When I was talking with the Ferguson Commission's Managing Director, Bethany Johnson-Javoy, last month, she told me that the people that came up with the ideas to change health care and education for people in St. Louis may be the people that actually implement it outside of the governmental arena.
2: People are getting excited about the how to implement. And so that natural energy that has built up is what's already sustaining this beyond an individual or a leader or a commission.
3: It sounds a little like what she's saying is basically it's up to people in St. Louis to address the issues that arose
4: from St. Louis. I think that's exactly what she's saying.
3: You know, I just can't help but wonder what the next, you know, two, three, four I don't know, five years might look like post-Ferguson. Do you mind if I go grab Rachel and bring her into the studio real quick? That would be fine with me. All right. Hang tight. Hey, Rachel. Hey, guys. All right. Let me just get a quick level. Can you tell me what you had for
4: breakfast?
0: I had cereal. It was in a bowl and there was milk.
3: Jason, let me check your level one more time. What'd you have
4: for breakfast? I had cereal, it was in a cup, and there was no milk. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now that we got that out of the way.
0: The important information you need to know. Yeah.
4: So we've talked a little bit about what has and hasn't passed in the legislature, and you talked about what's changed in policing, but I'm interested what is in the future for police here in St. Louis.
0: There's kind of two big things going on, one that's statewide, one that's more just based here in the city of St. Louis. You've got Governor Nixon asking the board that oversees policing in Missouri to set new standards by December 1st around continuing education, what officers have to get in training every year in the areas of officer well-being, so how well they're taking care of themselves mentally, physically, nutritionally, all that good stuff. But kind of more importantly for the conversation today, more training in culturally competent policing, um, learning about implicit biases and how what you think about the world changes and how, what you think about the world governs the decisions that you're making. And also in tactical training about going into a situation ready to kind of bring it down, calm it down, de-escalate rather than going in loaded for bear. In the city of St. Louis, Mayor Slay just appointed the members of the Civilian Oversight Board. Which
3: people have wanted for a long time.
0: 30 years. It's meant to give citizens a feel that they have some say in control over their department, real local control. They'll be able to look at internal affairs investigations and select policy changes. The city of Ferguson is also looking to do something similar, but we don't know exactly what that's going to look like yet. Right. And Jason, I'm curious though, lawmakers are going to go back in January with a whole lot of issues kind of still unresolved around this. What difference is anything that they do down there really going to make?
4: I think it could make some difference from a practical standpoint. If you make policies around body cameras that make police departments more willing to procure them, um, that could make a difference in their widespread use. But I think that the most difficult aspect of this entire policy conversation is that public policy is just one solution of a multifaceted problem. If you can't change what's in people's hearts about other races or people that with different economic statuses than themselves, then all the laws and all the grand initiatives in the world aren't going to change what is the reality on the ground.
3: Yeah, one of the those big talking points we've heard post-Ferguson of the many is you can't legislate hearts and minds.
0: Yeah, I mean, it makes you kind of wonder like you can do all the training you want around implicit bias and get people to recognize that maybe they are biased, but are you really actually changing what it is that they think? And are you really kind of enabling them in that split second to override the years and years and years of stuff that they've absorbed from the people that they live with?
3: Right, those split second decisions. I mean, You know, everybody in this newsroom, including myself, has been out talking with folks for over the last 12 months about what Ferguson means to them, just regular folks. Um, Anything stand out for either of you over the last couple of days?
4: Well, I think one person in particular who said something particularly insightful was Mark DeSantis, a Ferguson resident who is part of a group called One Ferguson. Right. That's a group that's trying to bridge racial and economic divides within the city. And he told me that as long as the St. Louis region and people there aren't comfortable living next to people that don't look like them or don't act like them or don't have the same economic status as them, then progress within St. Louis and certainly Ferguson is just never going to reach where it needs to be.
1: When people ask me how they can help, what I always say is that you should seek to live in a more diverse place than you live in right now. If you have more people living with people who aren't so much like them, that's really what is going to solve this problem.
3: You know, listening to that, I can't help but think about something that we remind ourselves of all the time when we produce this show, and that is that we're talking about systems, but you can't forget the fact that systems are run by people.
0: There's a fundamental truth to the refrain of protesters. The whole damn system is is guilty as hell. All
3: right. Well, I know we've all got a whole bunch of stuff going on right now, so... Thanks for hanging out for a little bit, guys.
0: Anytime. You're welcome. Cool. I
3: actually have to go. So, if many of the solutions being talked about after Ferguson can only be found in hearts and minds, I want to end the show with a story I heard while sitting in the balcony of Christ the King at United Church of Christ in Florissant. For me, it gets to the heart of what's really at stake here. Let me give it just a little bit of setup before we roll tape. It was four days after the death of Michael Brown. From the governor to faith leaders and civil rights activists, they'd all gathered to call for peace and dialogue. The pews were filled with white and black residents. At the time, everyone was just hoping for a night of calm after violent clashes between police and protesters. That's when Amy Hunter, director of racial justice at the YWCA of St. Louis, takes to the microphone and shares a story about being an African-American mother. More specifically, about the fear that can come with raising a young black man in America. It starts with her 12-year-old son walking in the Del Mar Loop, which sits on the traditional dividing line between white and black St. Louis.
2: My son was 12 and he was in the loop and his friends were drinking and he decided he wasn't gonna do that, so he was gonna walk home. We don't live far. So he walked home, and he came in the house shaking. He was 12. And he said, Mom, I just got stopped by the police. We had already had the conversation at 12. We had already had that conversation. And so he said, I was at the corner, and I knew he was going to stop me. And then, because he was 12, he asked me why. He said, but I'm wearing Sperry's. And I have my shirt tucked in, and I'm wearing a belt. And I ironed my shirt. He said, but when I got to the corner and I realized they were going to stop me, I was only five houses away. And I knew you were home, so I thought about running. Home to my mom, because he's 12. And then I said to my son, don't run whatever you do, don't run. And he is crying, telling me the story about how he got patted down, about how he got questioned at 12. And then he looked at me and he said, Mom, if this happened because I was black, I just wanna know how long will this happen to me? And I said, for the rest of your life. When it happened to Michael Brown, I called and checked on mine. Where are you? How are you? Are you okay? Before I pulled up, my son, who's graduating from Howard University. to tell me that they're protesting at Howard University too because this doesn't just happen here it happens everywhere.
3: I have to make a quick programming note right now um like you i'm missing the voice of emmanuel Barry right now she recently left the show to take an opportunity of a lifetime to live and work in china who can blame her now i will just say that emmanuel is not the kind of person who likes to be part of the story or to be honest she doesn't really like getting that much personal attention I know that's weird, a broadcast reporter who doesn't love attention. It turns out there are some out there in the world, and Emmanuel just happens to be one of them. So no big montage of her stories or emotional send-off. We're not going to do that. But I just want to say, and she would tease me sometimes about getting, you know, just like sentimental and cheesy. But she is one of the most talented people I have ever worked with, and I can't wait to see where her career, um, or let's just be honest here, maybe careers will take her. Um, She recorded one last show before she left. It's about race and people and perceptions and family, and it is just a great example of why she is so very, very good at what she does. You don't want to miss it. We'll have it in two weeks, and so just stay tuned uh, for that show. All right, let's get to the credits, uh, which feel weird to read without Emmanuel. but here we go. Uh, we Live Here is produced by me, Tim Lloyd, and Emmanuel Barry. Shula Newman is our editor, and Margie Freibogel is the editor of St. Louis Public Radio. Our theme music is produced by Cassie Morgan from St. Louis Public Radio. This is We Live Here.
1: Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.